0: Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is series 3, episode P. You will now be seen by the doctor. There's a stereotype about modern Indian parents, that they really want their children to become doctors. At least that's the stereotype in the UK and the USA. And there's got to be at least a little bit of truth in this stereotype, because Asian students make up about four to five times more of the medical students than they do the general population. But why do Indian parents in the UK and USA want their children to become doctors? If I go and talk to my doctor friends, they'll tell me that medicine's a pretty unpleasant career. It's very stressful. Every mistake you make could cost someone's life. The hours are absolutely terrible. And then there's this huge amount of paperwork to do. And in fact, the pay isn't even all that good for the first ten years. If you go and talk to Indian parents who do want their kids to become doctors, they'll say things like, Our children will earn money. Fair enough, but there are better paying jobs. Our children will learn to work hard. That's certainly true. I've even heard someone say that parents want their children to have no social life growing up. But that was a, a child pressure to medicine, not a parent pressuring their child. But... Another, more obvious reason for wanting your child to become a doctor is social kudos. Medicine's just a very highly respected profession, especially in the Indian community in the UK and the USA. Well, the same wouldn't have been true in ancient India. Because, as we'll be finding out, no respectable ancient Indian parent would want their child to become a doctor. Not for the social kudos, anyway. This episode, we're going to be taking a trip to the ancient Indian doctor. Somehow, we've never got around to it in the last three seasons. It's over 900 years of history without going to the doctor. Almost as long as I've not been going. So we'll take a brief look at what doctoring was like in earlier times, but we're spending most of our time as patients in the Gupta era. And we will be patients. We're going to leave learning about medical theory to the doctors. There are plenty of people in the modern world still practising ancient Indian medicine, or at least a modern version of one tradition of ancient Indian medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. It's everyday stuff in India. You can't go to a supermarket or a chemist in India without coming across some mention of it. So if you're coming to this podcast with some medical difficulty and hoping to come out with an ancient Indian diagnosis, I'm afraid you're not in luck. You'll have to pay for a real consultant. But if you want to come out knowing... What it would have been like to go to the doctor in ancient India? What people thought of doctors? What a hospital looked like? Then, listen on. The Twins, Physicians of the gods. Wonder workers. The sons of sun and cloud. Themselves, the gods of morning and evening, or the sun and the moon, One light-skinned, the other dark-skinned. If any physicians in ancient India would be respected, surely it would be them. But funny enough, they weren't even full respect at all parts of ancient Indian history. The story goes that the gods were sacrificing, but their sacrifice had no head. And because it was headless, the whole procedure wasn't working, wasn't achieving the intended outcome. So the gods called in the Ashwin twins to help. Come, reattach the head to our sacrifice, they said. And the Ashwin twins were willing to help, but for a price. And the price was a drink of Soma, the drink of the gods. You see, the Ashwin twins were physicians, and physicians, the gods had said, were very impure. And so they were not allowed to take Soma, they were banned from it. But now the gods needed help replacing the head, so they agreed... The twins got their portion of soma and the gods got their sacrifice with a head. The passage goes on to make a stern warning for human physicians. A Brahmin must not be a physician, it says. Medicine is impure. It makes you unfit to sacrifice. That story is told in the Yajurveda, one of the four Vedas, one of the core texts of the ancient Brahminical tradition. And the text that came after that, rammed home the point even further. Physicians are unclean, they say. Do not have them at the sacrifice. And especially, don't take food from them. If you're given food by a physician, treat as if they try to serve you blood and pus. Taken literally, this is a pretty surprising attitude. And it wasn't always so. In the very oldest of all Brahminical texts, the Big Veda, the Ashwin twins, they make a lot of appearances, and there's no bad treatment of them. There's no equivalent to them being treated unclean. What's more, the Rig Veda treats medicine as perfectly honourable, as a clean thing. There's a whole hymn with instructions on which plants to use in medicine. And the author of another hymn declares their ties to a physician with apparent pride. It says, I am a poet. My father is a physician. My mother throws corn on the grindstone. We pursue wealth and follow our callings as the herdsman his cattle. It's not just the Rig Veda. Physicians and medicine form an even bigger part of another ancient Brahminical text, the Atarva Veda. It's a collection largely of spells and charms, and many of them are medicinal, they're there to cure some disease. It's got a whole three passages on how to cure boldness, for example, apparently, Boldness was a worry for ancient Indians as much as for modern ones. Or, here's a charm for broken bones. Thou art the healer, making whole the healer of the broken bone. Make thou this whole, Arundhati. Whatever bone of thine within thy body hath been wrenched or cracked, may data set it properly and join together limb by limb. With marrow be the marrow joined, thy limb united with the limb thou art fallen of thy flesh and the bone also grow again let marrow close with marrow let skin grow united with the skin let blood and bone grow strong in thee flesh grow together with the flesh join now together hair with hair join now together skin with skin let blood and bone grow strong in thee unite the broken part o plant it's a hymn to arundhati asking for it's a really quite miraculous process of healing a bone. And here, Arundhati is a plant, but it's also Arundhati the goddess, the perfect wife. So in this work, we have a goddess playing the role of a medicinal plant, uh, a queen of plants, in fact, with honey-sweet flowers. A divine healer without any blemish. So here, in the Atharva Veda, it seems there's a deliberate attempt to make it clear that medicine is pure, to make it clear that medicine is part of the Brahminical work of sacrifice and ritual. Now, perhaps this attempt to unite medicine and the Brahminical tradition wasn't initially very successful. Nowadays, That book, the Arthava Veda, is one of the four Vedas, grouped alongside the Veda and the Veda that we quoted above. But back in ancient times, the centuries around the Mauryan era, people didn't think of it in that way. With its spells and its medicines and its charms, it was treated with a bit of suspicion, as if it were on a lower level. So most historians conclude that at the beginning of the primary tradition, physicians and medicine were honoured highly. But that is as... Brahminical orthodoxy developed, that changed. Physicians started to be seen as unclean. Medicine started to be seen as necessary but unpleasant, a bit like evacuation. And that became the mainstream view, despite people pushing back against it. That's really a bit of a mystery still. Why did this change happen? Why did people start to treat physicians as if they were impure? as if medicine was suspicious. Some historians say that it's because doctors in ancient India were secular. They based their work on the world of observations, gritty reality. And that was just embarrassing for these high-minded, theoretical, brahminical idealists. They didn't like it too much. That's been suggested both by historians from India and also by historians from the West. But it actually really makes good sense in the west in ancient greece you had this hippocratic medicinal tradition and that grew up alongside a medical tradition within the greek temples two rival medical systems if you are feeling unwell in ancient greece you could go to the temple or you could go to the hippocratic doctor by the way if you ever are in ancient greece and you get the choice i very strongly recommend going to the temple there they would probably just tell you to make some donations, and you get to sleep the night in the temple, and the rest will probably do you a bit of good. But if you go to the Hippocratic doctor, you're quite likely to get into trouble. For example, one of the treatments, you are tied upside down to a ladder, and the ladder is lifted and then dropped, lifted and then dropped repeatedly until you feel better. Which I assume will take an awful long time. After all, you're tied upside down and having yourself rammed into the ground. In some of the case notes from a Hippocratic treatment, a patient was told to run around the stadium a few times, which he very obediently did, until he dropped dead. So you see what I mean. If you're in ancient Greece, better off going to the temple than risking it with the Hippocratic doctor. But where were we? So, in ancient Greece, you could understand if... The temples got upset with the doctors. They were in the same business, they were competitors. And the Hippocratics were, in a very strange sense, more secular than the temples. They were against the mysticism of the temple, and they were for direct observation. But that just wasn't the case in ancient India. There is no parallel, more religious tradition of medicine to rival what the ancient Indian physicians did. There's no choice between temple and doctor in ancient India. And anyway, the doctors of ancient India, they weren't too secular or too scientific in any worrying sense. Their medical ideas, they were woven deeply into the ideas of proeminical orthodoxy from the very earliest times, from the very first document. This idea then, that medicine fell out of favour because it was too secular, just doesn't fly for me. And anyway... Perhaps we're overthinking things. Perhaps the best explanation for the treatment of doctors in early ancient India is right in front of us. Back then doctors weren't like they are today. They didn't work in a hospital. They wandered around the world and that meant that they would with all sorts of unsavory people. And it also meant they'd go to all sorts of dirty places. Out to get medicinal plants among the hills and the tribal folk. And even more than that, they would touch a lot of stuff that is, frankly, quite gross. Poo, vomit, blood, gut, gore, death. Treating doctoring as unclean is a pretty human reaction. And perhaps it doesn't need any more complicated explanation than that. And this, in fact, is pretty much exactly what those ancient Indians said themselves. Many years back, I took my first trip to Patna. Patna's the capital of Bihar in India. Bihar, back then, had a bit of a bad reputation in India. It was thought to be not a very nice place. High on crime, low on literacy. Lots of people seem to come from Bihar and from Patna and say, "We're just happy that we got out. But don't listen to that. It's a wonderful place. It was a wonderful place back then too. And one of the wonderful things was right there in Patna you in the centre, take a long walk down the dusty highways, parallel to the River Ganga, And there, if you're lucky, you'll come across a big sign. It's a billboard, groundly announcing the ruins of Padaliputra. It's hard to imagine a sign that's more exciting. And if you go on through, you pay what back then anyway was a tiny entrance fee, you're into this green park with some nice trees. And there on the grass... Strewn about are some fragments of Mauryan pillars. One almost complete one is protected by railings and a cover. These are the remains of a pillared hall with steps down to the river, way back in Morian times. The Morian sheen has gone off the pillars a bit, but anyway, we're not here for that. Push on further into the park, further away from the road, and you'll find the paths start to weave around these low-level fired brick walls. These are the stubs of buildings from the Gupta era. Nearby, flower beds are planted with medicinal plants and they waft this beautiful smell into the air. And there you'll find four small rooms. This was a Gupta era healing house attached to a Buddhist monastery. The floor was concrete, the walls brick. And we even know who ran the healing house. His name was Donavantari, and he was probably the physician working there. So, if you are ever in Gupta-era Patliputra and you are sick, now you know one place you can go. Head off to the Buddhist monastery and go to the house of healing there. Suppose, for example, you start feeling that there's something wrong in your body, your hands and feet are hurting when they move, head on down and the physician will welcome you into his healing house. A physician, he's probably not a monk. Instead, he's probably a lay person, someone with medical knowledge, though and there might be one or two other lame men and women about nursing folk who are lying around in the small rooms. The physician will examine you. and He's going to diagnose you with wind. Wind in the joints. Now, wind in the joints seems to have been a pretty serious condition. But thankfully, there's a cure. Sit down, roll up your sleeves, the doctor will now cut you open. No, it's not surgery, it's just a bit of bloodletting. You see, wind in the joints is a result of wind in the blood. So you need to get the blood out and the wind out and all will be better. Actually, in the patient's notes that we have about this condition, that particular patient, the bloodletting didn't work for him. The wind was still in the joints. So they used a horn to try and bash and pull the wind out. I'm afraid that the exact technique of using a horn to remove wind from the joints is now lost to us. But in ancient Gupta India, it seems to have done the trick. The physician that you see would have been working on the basis of centuries of Buddhist work in medicine. Medicine and Buddhism started out in a fairly primitive state. The very earliest Buddhist monks were allowed four resources. They were allowed meals for begging, robes from rags, a lodging in the shade of trees, although if you're a nun you've got to sleep elsewhere, and putrid urine. Putrid urine from cattle was clearly one of the prized parts of an early Buddhist monk's life. And what it was, was medicine. This urine was used for all sorts of treatments, from curing snake bites to curing liver disease. Valuable stuff. And then a bit later, when monks started to move into the monasteries, those four resources got replaced by four possessions. But medicine was still one of them. And caring for your fellow monks and nuns when they were sick, that became an important occupation. In fact, if you cared for someone then they died, you got to keep their four possessions, literally doubling what you owned. So caring for someone was a pretty big deal in Buddhist monasteries. But these people who are caring for their fellow monks and nuns, they're not exactly physicians. They're more like attendants. They make them comfortable, they apply some basic remedies. The doctor that we see when we go to the monastery in Pataliputra, he's going to be from a different line in Buddhism. The lay physicians. And that tradition was also as old as Buddhism, stretching all the way back to the time of Buddha himself. It started, in fact, by the side of a road near Pataliputra. There, in a box, lay a baby. It had been abandoned by its mother. A prince of the land came along, and he was deeply moved. He started asking around, Who is this baby? Why is it here? The baby being left by its mother. His mother was a, a courtesan, not someone who could have a child around. And some people even said that the father was the king himself. In any case, she had abandoned the baby here by the side of the road, hoping that it would survive long enough for someone to adopt him. The prince was even more moved. He was worried about the baby's exposure. He asked the local people, is he still alive? He lives, the local folk told him, which in Sanskrit is Jivati. So the prince adopted the baby. He brought him back to the palace and he called him Jivaka. Jivaka grew up in the luxury of the palace at Magda. And when he was almost grown, he snuck out, not telling his adopted father, the prince, where he was going. But he wasn't sneaking out to do what Teenagers normally do, see a girl or hang around with their mates or what have you. He was running away to university. And it was quite a long run too, many, many days travelling west until he got to the ancient university city of India, Taxila. And there, Jiviko managed to persuade a legendary physician to take him into his house. And he lived with the physician, serving him, watching him and being taught by him for seven years learning such advanced techniques as brain surgery, opening the skull and seeing and treating what he found there. After seven long years of learning, the legendary medic he was working with pronounced Yuvika ready to practice medicine. He sent him off with the following solemn warning. I am the best amongst Indian physicians, but after I die, that title will belong to you. Quite a lot to live up to. So with those words ringing in his ears, Jivaka set off home. There were some adventures along the way, but when he got home to Magda, his father, the prince, was apparently okay with his son sneaking out for seven years, and welcomed him back. He set him up as a physician for the royal court. And pretty soon, Jivaka was putting his hard-earned knowledge to use. There was a merchant he came across who had a disease of the head, Jivaka remembered his training. He cut open the skull and he pulled out two small little creatures. Yuck. He even cured the king's posterior. And he got rewarded with heaps of riches, literally heaps. Soon, Jivaka was part of the apparatus of state. He took up the job of a sort of physician ambassador. When a neighbouring king was ill, Jivaka was sent. On one occasion, he was sent all the way to Jan. And he came before the king of Ujjain. The king looked extremely pale, dangerously so. And Jiva quickly diagnosed the problem. Good news: there was a simple cure—ghee, clarified butter. But bad news: the cure was almost embarrassingly simple. The king was not going to be impressed. And even worse news: the king of Ujjain hated ghee really really hated it. But what could Jivaka do? It would make the king angry but it was the right treatment. So he prepared balls of ghee trying to disguise them and without saying what they were gave them to the king to swallow. As soon as the king had swallowed the balls Jivaka jumped up on the king's elephant and rode away. The king of Jen was mad. Well wouldn't you be? You're ill and you call for help and some quack physician feeds you nothing but ghee, disgusting ghee, and then does a runner in your best vehicle. The king sent his men out to go and get this quack doctor and bring him back to face justice. But when the king's men found Jivika, he managed to use his charm again. He persuaded them somehow to eat a ball of mirubalun. That's the stuff we heard about being grown in Assam a few weeks back. And it promptly made them all violently sick. Jivaka explained that he was sorry, he hadn't meant to harm them, and he wouldn't be running away. It's just that he needed some time before he was taken back to the king of Agen. When the men had recovered as best they could, they carried Jivaka back to Agen. up to the king, the king who they'd left in a towering rage, itching to get his hands on that fraudulent physician. But when they returned, the king was delighted. He welcomed Jivaka in, treating him to a a fine new set of clothes and thanking him. The cure, the Ghee, had had its time to take effect. Chivika was also assigned to become doctor to the Buddhist community, and in fact the personal physician of Buddha himself, and there are many stories about the two of them. He became a devotee of Buddhism, and as he treated his patients, they were also moved to join Buddha's growing band of followers. So, from the time before the Marian era, to the centuries before the Gupta era, Buddhism was very closely associated with medicine. Initially, Buddhist physicians tended to be the sort where they were just monks treating other monks, nuns treating nuns, but by the mid-200s AD, they were opening their doors to everyone. In the great Buddhist university monasteries, like Nalanda, people came to study medicine, and by the side of the great trade routes, you could pull off and go up to a monastery and find a hall of healing. It wasn't just Buddhism either. To a slightly lesser extent, Jainism was also associated with physicians, it still is, and so was Ajivikism. Some historians say that these movements were stepping into the gap. Brahminical orthodoxy at this time seemed quite hostile to the physicians, so perhaps physicians were more likely to attach themselves to the less orthodox views, in much the same way as a low caste folk were more likely to attach themselves to the less orthodox views. Whether that's true or not, by the time of the Guptas, if you're feeling sick, a trip to the Buddhist monastery might be just the thing that you want. By the Gupta era, there were other options available to the sick people of Patliputra. Medicine was now firmly back in the Brahminical mainstream. The ancient text, the one with the charms and the spells and the medical advice, that was now firmly accepted as one of the four Vedas, one of the foundational documents. And the final touches were also being put on other great medical books, books which distilled medical knowledge that had come to humanity over the centuries. And the knowledge had come, the book said, from the gods themselves. Typical story goes that there was a conference of ancient physicians on the slopes of the Himalayas, and they decided that they wanted to put an end to human suffering due to disease, because that sort of suffering was distracting people from what really mattered. So they elected one of them to go and talk to the god Indra. And their representative learnt the knowledge of the science of life and brought it back to humanity. And in the Gupta era, that knowledge was bound up with knowledge from other sources, including the knowledge of that legendary physician in Taxila we talked about earlier, the one who taught that runaway adopted boy. It was all collected in a book called the Charaka Samhita, which means something like the science of the wandering aesthetic. And this was soon joined by other works that became the bedrock of Ayurvedic medicine. But what would it be like to be a patient of one of these doctors? Well, for one thing, quite a lot would be expected of you as a patient. There was this idea, in fact, stepping back to the Buddhist ideas, of what it was to be a good patient. Something my doctor friends would very much like to bring back to the modern world, I suspect. A good patient remembered things clearly, was forthcoming about them, fearless and obedient. It's a good ideal to live up to. So you come into the hospital prepared to be fearless and obedient to all that, and the hospital building itself, well, that seems to have been especially pleasant. It's supposed to be quiet, away from noise and away from smoke and dust too. In the most peaceful kind of hospital, the ones for the patients who really need peace and quiet, there's supposed to be three concentric courtyards. So you go through the first door, and then through the second door, and the third door getting further and further from the hustle and bustle of normal life, as if you're penetrating an inner sanctum. But even the less smart hospitals should have a nice, quiet area. They should be built on good, clean soil, no stray pottery or bones. should have amenities too, a bath and a toilet, even a kitchen producing soup and rice. And You might find musicians there alongside the attendants and nurses. The hospital should have an open air space for catching the sun or just sucking up the fresh air. And the things that the doctors did in these hospitals were quite remarkable. We've already heard mention of brain surgery, which is probably not much more than simple trepening or trepanning, opening up the skull and relieving pressure. But there was also plastic surgery. That's something that's often talked about today in India, but the details are important. Suppose you turn up to the hospital with a really badly damaged nose. Well, the physicians would try to repair it for you. First, they would make the remaining part of the nose raw by rubbing it. And then they would take skin from somewhere else in your body and graft it onto the nose. They would prop up the nostrils with two tubes to make the nose the proper shape. Then they'd get this mixture, licorice, red sandalwood, uh, barberry, and they'd place it on the wound and then they bind the whole thing with cotton. Surgery, even quite radical surgery like that, seems to have been a pretty common thing in ancient India, at least relative to other parts of the world. There are lengthy lists of different kinds of surgeries, and also lots and lots of surgical instruments. At the hospital you'll find 20 types of tubes, 24 curved blunt instruments. You'll find forceps, uh, instruments shaped like the mouth of a fish. These instruments made of iron. And you get sharp instruments too, nail cutters, razors, but also little surgical sickles or cutters shaped in the, in the shape of a leaf. Now, if you'd come to the hospital with a complaint that didn't need surgery, well, depending on what that complaint was, you might be directed to a different sort of hospital, one specially designed for the treatment you need. Suppose you had that wind disease, and instead of going to the monastery, you came to the hospital. Well, you might be placed in a sweating house. This would be a building built on black or golden earth, high walls raised out of the earth uh, with few air holes. And in the centre of this little hut, there'll be an oven, as tall as a human, and filled with wood. And by the time you entered the sweating house, the wood would just be embers, all the smoke would be gone and the whole place would be pulsing with heat. Your eyes and nose would be covered with a cloth, or maybe with the dough of a lotus plant, to protect it from the heat. You'd be left there to sweat. Or, if you were pregnant, there was a special place for you to go, with experienced midwives, nice and quiet. Or, if you came in with a fever, you might be laid down in a cold room, a room built underground, and there'd be wood there which would have Water constantly poured over it. There would be showers. There would be silk to wear, because silk feels nice and cool. And women would fan you with the leaves of lotuses, and they'd stroke you gently. Women fanning you, golden ovens, silk clothing, musicians. All of this sounds tremendously expensive. It's hard to imagine this being available to the poor or partly But there are plenty of other treatments mentioned in the medical manuals. Instead of building a sweating house, you might just be given a bath of very hot water, for example. At least some of the hospitals seem to have been open to the poor and desperate at large, giving these sorts of treatments. These hospitals seem to have been paid for by the merchants of the city. Places to come, be healed and leave, ready to face the world outside once again. Every week we read something from the original sources and this week, well, I thought we wouldn't read something from the Charaka Samhita, the book that we've been talking about really quite a lot. Instead, we're going to talk about a slightly later book, but almost as important, the Shushruta Samhita. These two books are actually very similar. Both are based on earlier knowledge drawing on centuries-old ideas, but both were compiled in the Gupta period and both cover everything from surgery to snake bites. In fact, we've heard from the Sushruta Samhita before. We talked about it in that special episode on food that we had a month or so back. Most of the recipes in that episode were from the Sushruta Samhita. But today, we're more interested in the medicinal part of the book. So we're going to read two extracts. Extracts that reflect tension that people find in these books between empirical medicine, or what they see as empirical medicine, and apparent superstition. That's how a lot of historians put it anyway. We're going to read one extract that talks about how to deal with arrow wounds. I chose arrow wounds because it's something that hopefully no one listening has ever experienced. And then we're going to look at another section, just a little bit later in the book, talking about the interpretation of dreams. It goes like this. Now hear me describe the symptoms which are exhibited in connection with an arrow wound. These symptoms may be grouped under two subheads, such as the specific and the general. The general characteristics are as follows. The ulcer, which is marked by pain and swelling and presents as a raised or bloated aspect like a water bubble, assumes a dark brown hue. appears soft to the touch. The seat of the ulcer is seen to be studded over with pustular eruptions and a constant bleeding sets in from its inside. The specific symptoms which mark an arrow lodged in the skin are the hardness and extended character of the local swelling and the darkness of its skin. In a case where the arrow is lodged in the flesh, the swelling increases in size and the incidental ulcer refuses to be healed and cannot bear the least pressure. Separation sets in and the ulcer is characterised by a sort of sucking pain. Pretty useful advice on how to tell whether the arrow is still in the wound or not. Here's the section just a little bit later about dreams. Now I shall describe the dreams which either being dreamt by the patient or by his relations portend fatal or a successful close of the malady. The patient who dreams of going towards the south on the back of an elephant or on that of any carnivorous animal or riding on a boar or a buffalo or sees himself carried towards that quarter by a dark woman with dishevelled hair and clad in a blood-red garment laughing and dancing, that patient soon meets his doom. A dream by a patient that members of the vile castes have been drawing him southward or that ghosts or anchorites have been embracing him or that savage beasts with diabolical faces have been smelling his head predicts that his earthy days are numbered while such dreams occurring in a healthy subject indicate an impending disease. Having dreamt a bad dream in the first watch of the night a person should meditate upon a holy or auspicious subject and then lie down again with all his senses fully controlled and repeat the mantras sacred to any of the gods. An evil dream should not be related to another. The dreamer of the dream should reside in a holy temple for three consecutive nights and worship the deity with the most fervent devotion, whereby its evil effects would become nullified. Now we shall describe the dreams which are of an auspicious nature. Members of the twice-born castes, Gods, cows, bullocks, kings, one's own living friends and relations, a blazing fire, a brahmana or a sheet of clear water seen in a dream by a healthy person predict, to him, a pecuniary gain in the near future, whilst such dreams occurring in a diseased person indicate a speedy recovery of the disease he's been suffering from. Similarly, dreams of meat, fish, garlands of white flowers, cloth and fruit predict a gain or a speedy cure as the case may be. Dreams of ascending the terrace of a royal palace, of climbing a tree or a hill, or of riding an elephant predict similar results as above. A dream of one sailing over a river, pool or sea of turbid water predicts a money gain or cure according as one is healthy or diseased. A dream of having been bit or stung by a serpent, by leeches or by a bee indicates bliss or cure according to one's good or bad health at the time. The man who usually gets such auspicious dreams should be looked upon as a long-lived man and may be unhesitatingly taken under medical treatment by a physician. And that's it for this week. A quick look at life as an ancient Indian patient. And it really was a very quick look. There's too much that I've left out to even mention in passing. And actually that's also it. For season three. At least for now. There are plenty of other special episodes about the Gupta era that I wanted to do, but I've just got myself too excited about the next series. It's going to be a thrilling one. By the way, I'm moving continent over the next few weeks. That's going to mean lots of exciting changes for the podcast. I'm moving to India, so I'm going to be able to get some different sort of access, more interviews, more news on that shortly. That's a practical implication. I've got the luxury of flying through the air, but this podcasting equipment in front of me, that's going to be taking the long, slow journey across the sea. It's going to be months before I see it again. I'm going to try to record a few podcasts in these last couple of days I have here, but the episodes for the next three months will come about once a fortnight. Apologies, this is a one-off, and I think in the long run, it's going to make the podcast better. I hope you've been enjoying this series and the podcast in general, and if you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail City Patrick Memorial Fund. The details are on the website, there's a link in the description. Catch you in a couple of weeks. Until then, have a great time. Take care.